1 Thessalonians 1, verses 1 to 10. Hear the word of our God. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Grass withers, the flower fades, God's inerrant and holy word endures forever. And may he bless us with it this morning. Rhetorical questions are always good for us in a congregational setting so that I don't need you to shout out, yes, we know the answer to these questions. But that, that understanding with a rhetorical question that we've all experienced this in some fashion or another. I know growing up, we as children were often eager to become children of that age where we didn't need babysitters anymore. How many of you are thankful that we have grown up enough that our parents have trusted us not to have babysitters over us? Though sometimes, even in your teenage years, I can say as a parent, you sometimes reconsider those decisions. But I I want us to think of it from the aspect of a parent. Uh, Parents, do you recall that first occasion you left your young children alone at home for several hours? This wasn't a quick jaunt out to the grocery store to get milk and eggs and to come back. We're talking about a very extended period of time and your children, perhaps at, at their age, 11, 12, it's your first time doing it and you're thinking and thinking, how is this going to go? There, there is a level of trust you want to exercise and you're trying to exercise that, but you worry. You worry about the numerous things that could go wrong. You worry, especially when one of your children can be a bit more antagonizing towards the other siblings and how they're going to get along. Or you just plain worry because 
you know your children and you know what you experience when you're there with them. What's it going to be like when you're not there? We know those feelings. Let me say to you, this is why this letter to the Thessalonians is so full of grace and gratitude. You don't miss it when you come to the opening words. Paul and Silas and Timothy had come to Thessalonica to plant a church. They went to the synagogue. They went for three Sabbaths, maybe a little over two and a half weeks, explaining and expounding the truth of Jesus Christ and the work of his grace on the cross to show to them from Scripture that Jesus was the Messiah that they were waiting for. And and this infant church in Thessalonica was born. Uh, It it grew very quickly. Can you imagine having uh, a number of leading women, a a multitude of Greeks, and and a few Jews, and, and others, suddenly, after two and a half weeks of ministry, coming together as a congregation of the Lord, Uh, That's church planting. Uh, That's what we as church planters dream of. Now it's it's far more laborious. Now in the darkness and the clutter of, of our world, it is more challenging. You're not working with people who have some measure of understanding of God or of God's word or of of Jesus himself. And the work is more laborious. But what happened when that infant church in Thessalonica popped up? Immediately. I mean, we're talking within days. Persecution came with the force of all of the unbelieving Jews and a great crowd, a mob from the marketplace of unruly men who could terrorize people. Immediately. Heavy persecution came. We call that baptism by fire in a a different sense. Uh, We call that uh, experiencing the force of the hatred of the world in coming to Christ. And and you can imagine Paul as a parent of of this infant church wondering. Because he and Silas and Timothy, they had to flee. They had to get out. And and it was like that wherever they went, mostly from the Jewish population that would stir up the, the mob of the cities to come against Christianity. And they would charge them falsely. These men are promoting another king, another lord who they claim is greater than Caesar. You know, it's the time with the Jews, it wasn't uncommon for them to uh, make the enemy of their enemy their friend. Because the Jews never loved Caesar. But boy, they would certainly go and flee to him if it meant confounding Christianity. What's happening with Thessalonica? A worried parent. And so they send Timothy back to see how the church is doing. Can you imagine being that man? I've got to go back to that place. Oh, wow. Church planting, even in the first century of the church, was hard. But Timothy 
rejoins Paul and Silas and brings a report of their status, how this church is thriving. That's the thing about persecution. Persecution never kills the church. God has made that so. Do you know, I've said it before, but I want to say it again. Do you know what the greatest enemy of the church is? I used to think it was just one thing, but it's actually two things. Presumption, which leads to complacency and apathy, and false teaching. And false teaching isn't something that comes from without. It's often that which rises up within. Those are the enemies of the church. The church thrives under persecution. And and we see that here. The church was doing well. And and you look at uh, verses 2 and 3. There's our focus this morning. But you look at these verses and and you you get a hint of, of something that was helping Thessalonica along. Not just what they were doing as a church. But you see what was sustaining them. I want to say two things very clearly jump out here as what was sustaining this very new church. The first was prayer. The prayer of others. The prayer of Paul. The prayer of Silas. We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing. Prayer. You look at how consistent this prayer was. It it was the lifeblood of the church. We're making mention. We're bringing your names before God. We remember you without ceasing. We have an earnest mindfulness of the body of Christ. I want to stress that. Prayer is the lifeblood of the church. And and again, you can trace this through history, how a church is, how a church is growing, has a connection to how well they are thriving in their prayers together before God. What was one of the first marks of the church as it was growing in Jerusalem? That they came together to hear the apostles' doctrine and to have that fellowship and that communion and the sacraments that Christ had given. And what? Prayer. It wasn't an afterthought. It was the life of the church. You know, I want to just take a moment and sort of relate this to hope. Do you know why we, our presbytery desired to plant a church here in Kingston? And I know this is, I'm saying this to be provocative. It wasn't so that we could have a reformed church in this city. It was, I I personally don't care for that phraseology. It was so that we could have a gospel, confessional, Presbyterian church in this city. And you think, what's the difference? Well, here's, here's a bit of the difference. Because what is to mark a more or less pure church. You stop and you think, what makes a church a church of God beyond uh, gathering together? What makes a church more or less faithful to God? 
I mean, there were already Christian churches in this city. What is it that we sought to add to it? Well, when you read this, uh, and this is from our confession, confessional, meaning we uphold the truth of God's word as it has been conveyed from the apostles into the church to all generations. We have a confession of our Lord and and of the doctrines of God that we hold to that are essential to Christianity. And churches are more or less pure according as the doctrine of the gospel is taught and embraced. Have you embraced the gospel? Is God more than just a Sunday matter in your life. Think about that for a moment. You understand the gospel. You understand the work of Christ. We're coming into the season of Easter where it's more prevalent on the minds of of the church uh, to remember and to create all these displays throughout the world of what Christ did on the cross. Have you embraced that? Do you you understand that sacrifice for sin, that sacrifice unto death to conquer the enemy, death? (laughs) You understand the resurrection. That's going to pertain to the evidences of grace. That we came to, to bring the doctrines of the gospel, to teach them, for them to be embraced and To administer the sacraments according to scripture. We know that's one of the debated things about baptism and even the Lord's Supper. What they mean and what they purpose. But also here, a church is more or less pure. As the doctrines of the gospel are taught and embraced. Ordinances administered and public worship performed more or less purely in them. How do you worship God? Do you know how to worship? And and the church is here to present that glory that is ours in the Lord Jesus to worship God. We came with that purpose. And you are all here, part of hope. Some are members, some of you aren't, some are becoming members. Some were hopeful to address that in the next several months. What sustains us? And I want to say to you, the the most important thing that will sustain us in this respect is prayer. How How do you pray for hope? When you think of hope, when you think of our worship... Listen, my friends, I I understand these chairs are hard. They're hard chairs. I'd love to have a different setting. Our services are a little longer than others. Some of you are saying, Pastor, you you have a a measure of understatement there. We don't have peers for everyone. I get that. It's hard to plan a church. How are you praying for hope? Do you pray for hope? You see, there, there is, when you read those words of verse 2 and 3, before Paul does anything else, what does he say? To a church that is struggling under persecution, to a church that is striving to be the representation of God's kingdom, 
to a city that hates it. My friends, I just described the church here in Kingston. How do you pray? And Paul says, we give thanks to God for you always. Making mention of you in our prayers. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope. Remember with thanksgiving why this church is here. Why you're part of it. How the Lord is working. And, and the second thing that comes out in, in backing up to verse 1 is this whole matter of God's grace at work. It's not just our prayers that sustain a church. It's God's grace at work in our midst. That undeserved love and kindness of God that is working toward this unworthy sinner. And God's grace was indeed at work in this city. Within three Sabbaths, a church sprung up from the preaching of Christ crucified and risen again. Paul says in the the following verses, the gospel came in the power of the Spirit and saved many. That's grace. Well, I pose this question as we look at that whole issue of the evidence of grace. How do you know a church is conducting itself in accordance with grace? Because we can be here today thinking, well, you know, there's things I like about hope, but there's things I like about over here. But how do you know which church is conducting itself within the spectrum of God's grace? Isn't that an important question to ask? It's got nothing to do with hard chairs, length of services, peers, whatever else we want to put in their programs. It's how is the church conducting itself in God's grace? What an important question. And what we see here, the evidence of grace, and and I want to stress this, truly I believe this, that it begins here with what Paul mentions In verse 3, we can see there is this work of faith, this labor of love, this patience of hope. Not youth programs, not some extracurricular mercy ministry, which isn't wrong in itself. Those things aren't wrong in themselves. But what is it that makes a church give evidence that God's grace is at work in their midst? We can see this. Grace was flourishing. That's the first thing we see here. Paul is saying the one thing Timothy came back, and it's not just Timothy. Everybody else is saying this about Thessalonica. Grace was flourishing. And we see it in your faith, your love, and your hope. Those three virtues that evidence God's grace working in the church. Do you know how many times Paul emphasizes those three virtues? Most of you are familiar with 1 Corinthians 13, 13. When Paul says that it, of, of anything that re, resides with us, that remains with us in this earthly life until we find ourselves in glory, what are those three virtues that guard and guide our conduct in the grace of God. 
These three remain. Faith, hope, love. And, and in Corinthians and in that chapter, he, was str- he stresses it, the greatest of these is love. Uh, he stresses it there because of their need to emphasize love. Here in this letter, hope is the emphasis. In Romans, it was faith. Do you know how many times Paul emphasizes that? He, he does so in Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 13, Galatians 5, Colossians 1, 1 Thessalonians. It's, it's one of those things that he remarks is an identifying mark of grace at work. Think of this with Romans 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, but through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. It's, it's important to see that for Paul, faith is the first thing he focuses on every time he speaks about the virtues of God's grace. Why? Because faith is laying hold of Jesus Christ. Through whom hope and love are nurtured. You don't have hope and love without faith. It begins there. But this is is the key point. Faith, hope, love working in you by God's grace. And they work in tandem with each other. And what is this work of faith that, that Paul is talking about that is so evident amongst the Thessalonians? What is the work of faith in your life? Well, we know... It isn't about what we do. And I want to stress that. Though faith shows itself in doing. But we know it's not about those kind of works where we go out and serve people and do things in the name of the Lord. Because we are told in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, uh, we are saved by faith. In Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. What's that next line? Not of works, lest any man should boast. So it's not our works that we are doing that is the work of faith. Rather, we get an understanding of it when you go to James chapter 2. And he distinguishes between what is dead faith and what is living faith by the works that flow from faith. Now I'll leave you to read James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, later on today to see this. But when he talks about the works of faith, this is what he means. It's where you so trust in the Lord Jesus that you obey His word in the midst of trials and tribulation with a contented peace in the Father. Say that again. The work of faith is where you so trust in the Lord Jesus 
that you obey his word in the midst of trial and tribulation with a contented peace in the Father. That's your work of faith. And James gives us two examples. They're not the only two examples in Scripture, but there are two examples that he sets forth before us. The first is Abraham. Here's the work of faith. Abraham, I want you to go up on this mountain and sacrifice your son to me. I saw a funny meme this past week in respect of that. I chuckled because it was uh, a person who, in, in a pretense, was saying, uh, no, no, that's all right, Abraham, I didn't mean it. It, it, was, it was just a joke. Don't go ahead and do it. You know, The thought that God would require child sacrifice. Is that what God was requiring? Did Abraham believe that God wanted him to sacrifice his son? Yes. Does God want you in your faith to be ready and prepared to sacrifice your family? Yes. If you do not love me more than your husband or your wife or your children, what's the next line? You are not worthy to be my disciple. It's a hard thing. Thessalonica, we see your work of faith. You are so trusting in the Lord Jesus. You're obeying his word in the midst of trials and tribulation with a contented peace in the Father. Doesn't that describe Abraham going up the hill with Isaac? And Isaac says, we've got the wood, we've got the fire. Where's the sacrifice? And we find out from the New Testament that why was Abraham so at peace in that time? Because he believed the resurrection. He knew God would raise Isaac from the dead. He wasn't afraid. And and we get another one, Rahab. Everybody always uses Rahab. We talked about this in our study of Joshua. Everybody uses Rahab to try and understand if it's all right to tell a lie. No, it isn't. Rahab had weak faith. But she had faith. And how did her faith work? It worked in desiring the kingdom of God so much she was willing to hide those spies in her house in the face of death. Everyone in Jericho knew she had taken in these spies. Everyone knew she had helped them. She should have been put to death. But in that covenant of God's grace, God comes to Abraham and says, I want you for my kingdom. Now serve me. And she put her life on the line. The work of faith. You have others. Job. Job. You know why Job went through so many trials? And for a measure of those trials, he was at peace with God. As heavy and weighty as those trials were, because he believed God. God. Why did God try Job? Because he wanted to shame Satan. No other reason. I want to silence this one who's accusing one of my beloved people. So do what you want. I know my servant will believe. You see what a work of faith is. Or Paul. Paul who's writing this. 
Did Paul have a work of faith? Absolutely. What did God say to him when he said, I want you to be my apostle and I'm going to send you to the Gentiles and I'm going to show you how much you must what? How much you must suffer for my name. And Paul was warned. Now, do you go out in faith knowing your life is on the line? And you read 2 Corinthians 11 and you see the litany of things that Paul suffered and we, we think our suffering is hard. How many of you have been beaten with rods five times? Shipwrecked three. Imprisoned often. Scourged three times. That's 39 lashes. Three times. I doubt the Thessalonians have endured that much of what Paul... But I'm setting these before you to understand... This is the work of faith. And it isn't that God is some kind of sadist that is looking for his people to suffer without reason. It's so that you will learn the sufficiency of his grace to uphold you and keep you in every circumstance. And the work of faith is saying, I trust God with my life however hard it is. And the second evidence of grace flourishing is this labor of love. My friends, it doesn't get any easier. (laughs) But this labor of love, that word labor, is a word that expresses a very hard and trying, troubling effort. It's when you're struggling, uh, if, if you will, you're struggling to get that bolt going that is so rusted that all your pressure on it isn't moving it a bit. And you keep pushing until you, you ruin your wrench and scrape your knuckles against the uh, material that you're working with because you've been pushing so hard and seeing so little result. That, that's the kind of idea with that word labor. Mothers can understand it when we think of bearing children. That word labor, it's hard. (laughs) It's not easy. But it's a labor of love, and it's a love that is directed toward others. It's a love where you are loving sinners and enemies, and yes, even that irritating brother and sister in Christ. A labor of love. We can see love is existing in this place. The flourishing grace of God in the lives of these people. And we understand this word love. It's sacrificial. It's selfless. It's full of compassion and kindness. Toward who? These two words. Toward unworthy It's a love that is exercised not to those who deserve it, not to those who have been kind to us, not to those who are in some way benefiting us. It's simple and outright. The very love of God exercised in our lives toward others. One commentator, some of you may know Leon Morris, he said this. He said, think on God's love. God loves us. Knowing full well our complete unworthiness. God loves us without thought of gain or advantage. Because there is nothing that we can bring to him. (laughs) 
But he loves us. He loves us because that is his nature, to love. Because he is love itself. Continually, God gives himself in a love which is for the blessing of others, not for the enrichment of himself. Because he's God, he doesn't need things to enrich him. And, and, and this is that love that we heard from Romans 5, verse 5, that love that has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Now put in mind, let's start with an enemy. What did Jesus say in Matthew 5? Love your enemy. Do good to him. Pray for him. Bless him. Does he deserve it? No. Do you have the capacity to do it? Yes. Because that love of God has been poured out in your heart and you realize that's how God has loved me when I was an enemy. He sent his son to die for me when I was a sinner and an ungodly man and he reached down and said, here is my love to you. Here's the labor of love. Do you think that that wasn't a hard labor for the Father and the Son to come and endure that curse of the cross for the sake of all of his people. You can't read those verses in, in Matthew 27 and, and, and in, in John uh, 19 and 19. Jesus is crying out from the cross. You can't read those words without a tear falling from your face to understand what he was enduring, forsaken by God, a man who did nothing wrong, whose every fiber of his life here on earth was loving God in all its fullness. Says those words that we as Christians will never say. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A labor of love. And when, when God's grace comes into a church, what's he looking for? He's looking for that work of faith. We trust you, God. We will obey your word even when it is hard. And we will do so with peace with you. Because we've been justified. We have peace with God. And this labor of love. God, you've poured your love into my life. Your grace is at work. I cannot help but love sinners. I cannot help but love one who is my enemy. I cannot help but love that irritating brother and sister whom you loved and delivered. <laughs> I say that because in our homes we always have that irritating child. The church is no different. We love, not because they deserve it or they're worthy or it benefits, because God's grace is at work. And the last one, and our time is moving on, so I close with this, is the third evidence of grace flourishing is a patience of hope. Patience, a, con a constant, a continual endurance that we are going to receive what God has promised. And here that focus is on that inheritance 
of eternal life and glory. And Paul said it in this way in Titus 3. He says there that God saved us where having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We are inheriting eternal life. Do your thoughts go there when you're enduring some trial or some heavy temptation? Do your thoughts go there when the afflictions of the body increase in our lives as we grow older? And it is so hard today. I don't want to, I think it's an illustration. It's been a very hard week for for Joanne. And, And even this morning, she just had to go back to bed. The migraines are so heavy and so weighty. And you get to that place where you just hear that cry, I want this to end. How many of you are there? But instead of that being the focus, what is to be a focus that is enriched by grace? Thank God I have this these pains, these sufferings, these trials, these issues of death will come to an end. And God himself, our Heavenly Father, has promised to do what for you? Just as a parent comes to a child who's hurting and crying, and you wipe away those tears and you say, it's going to be fine, it's going to be fine. God will wipe away your every tear. He will. We have a patience of hope that works in that grace that flows from our faith, that understands God's love is at work leading us to an eternal glory that is sure and steadfast. My friends, this is what marked a church living in the grace of God. We see your work of faith. We see your labor of love. We see your patience of hope. What it would be for this world to hear us as God's people with all of the issues that are going on in our country that really work to stir up anger in so many of us rather than looking at that and becoming angry to have this faith in God that he's doing a work and I will trust and obey him even if it means hardship. I will love. I will exhibit a love of God to those who don't deserve it, that they may know the work that Christ has done for them. And I will wait patiently for that hope that Christ has laid hold of me for. That's a church of Jesus Christ flourishing in the grace. Is that flourishing? In your hearts. And we're going to come to a table. Where the sacrifice of Christ is presented to us again. What are we coming to that table with? Faith. Hope. Love. That marks us. Marks us in everything we do as God's people. My friends, does that mark you in your life? If it doesn't, you need to begin with faith. You need to come to God. You need to see. He alone is the Savior of sinners whose work on the cross is the only thing. And being the only thing, it's the only sufficient thing. Praise God, it is sufficient. To save you from all your sins. Take away the curse of death. 
and to establish you in that hope of eternal life. Come to Christ. His grace in you will bring forth this work of faith, this labor of love, this patience of hope. Because it is in Jesus Christ.